As far as the abortion thing, I Ohio legislators love to write new abortion laws, so I wouldn't be surprised for them to write another one. But I will also point out that they already have written one that says basically if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion becomes outlawed in Ohio. This is Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. And that was David DeWitt, editor-in-chief of the Ohio Capital Journal, who appeared on last week's episode. On today's episode, we pick up this thread, turning full-on to the constant barrage of attacks on reproductive rights, especially abortion rights, around the country and here in Ohio. My guest is someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time now, Professor Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development, and Judge Ben C. Green, Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University's School of Law. Among other things, Professor Hill is one of the nation's foremost experts on abortion law, so we're super lucky to have her here in Ohio, and even luckier to have her on the show. You can read more about her work by checking out our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com. And while you're at prognosisohio.com, please consider supporting the show for just $3 a month by becoming a Patreon. We'd really appreciate it. Professor Jesse Hill, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the joys of this this show is from time to time I get to talk to my heroes, and you're one of them. I've been citing and reading your work for before I ever uh, thought about living in Ohio um, as, as a um, graduate student working on a dissertation that had a, a, a sizable component on reproductive rights and feminist theory. So uh, it's really exciting for me to, to be oh. able to do this. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> I'd like to start with a, a snapshot, a kind of big picture snapshot of things in Ohio. So you're a law professor and you're an expert on reproductive rights, but, but you also keep track of the general situation from, you know, just a number of perspectives. I, I wonder if you can just start us off and give, give listeners a snapshot of what access to abortion services in particular, you know, currently look like in Ohio. So I would say I have been working in this field for a little over 20 years, all told. Um, I've been in Ohio for most of that time. And I would say that it has really been a story of very sharp decline, particularly after about 2010 or 2011. So about the last 10 years, we've seen the number of abortion clinics in Ohio shrink substantially. There was something like 16 at the beginning of that time period. Now there are only six clinics that provide surgical or procedural abortion services. Um, And then there has been an onslaught as well of just what I particularly tend to watch, which is the, the very hostile legislation all kinds of restrictions on abortion and increasingly recently attempts to just ban abortion outright. Um, Those attempts haven't been successful so far, um, but the legislature keeps passing laws that are getting blocked for now in the courts in Ohio. So um, Ohio has erected all sorts of barriers as well to abortion. Um, For example, you know, there's a 24-hour waiting period. You have to have two in-person visits at least to have an abortion in Ohio. Of course, you have to run a gauntlet of protesters. And then in December of this last year, Ohio passed a law saying that you cannot use telemedicine for um, medication abortion. So some abortions can be performed just with pills, with medication for early abortion. And 
uh, Ohio voted to take that off the table for um, only abortion, um, whereas it was expanding telehealth services for every other kind of medical service. I mean, we were, were, we were and still are in the middle of a pandemic. So um, it's that law, too, got blocked. The, the law banning telehealth for abortion has been blocked so far, but it's just been one thing after another. Yeah, I think one of the first things I heard about when I got here in 2010 was the heartbeat bill. And I was involved in some of the activity down at the state house around that as a, you know, oh, a, a, yeah. a new Ohioan. That's been around forever. Actually, Ohio was the first state in the country to introduce that bill. We weren't the first one to pass it, but um, we were the first to introduce a bill like that. So we're not first in flight, but we are first in that. <laughs> we are really on the cutting edge of abortion restrictions. That is um, that is what we're known for. <laughs> so, so what what is the current legal state of things then? Just to clarify, because you know it, it strikes me that, and you know, I pay pretty close attention to this stuff. I, I, I mm-hmm. think in my job, and just I, I'm a reader, but I often just kind of stop for a moment and recall the fact that I I don't actually know where we are at any given moment. So like for the average person who's not watching the play-by-play, they may think it's a different landscape than it actually is. Right. I mean, it it is really hard to stay on top of, even for somebody like me, and I work in this area practically full time. Um, So Ohio has passed a a large number of laws um, restricting abortion over the past 10 years. We, I am, in addition to teaching, I also work as a lawyer and I litigate cases challenging those laws as being unconstitutional. And most of them have been blocked by the courts, most of the sort of worst ones. So Abortion is legal in Ohio up until the essentially 22 weeks um, of pregnancy. And, um, you know, the full range of abortion services is available right now. I mean, I will say that, you know, what, what you just said, there have actually been studies that have shown that people really are confused when all these laws pass about what the law is and what is and is not in effect. Um, and, after, for example, after that heartbeat bill did pass in 2019, it actually never went into effect. So the heartbeat law would ban abortion starting as early as six weeks of pregnancy. It's similar to the one that's in Texas um, right now, but it never went into effect because we got it blocked in court, but people thought it was. And the number of people who thought abortion was actually illegal in Ohio went up dramatically after that law was passed. So, um, so it really is confusing. The other thing I just want to say in terms of where we stand sort of big picture across the country is access to abortion and abortion rights are absolutely in the most peril I have seen, uh, certainly in the time I've been doing this work. And I would venture to say since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided. Um, And I'm sure we'll want to talk about it, but the Supreme Court is considering a major abortion rights case this term in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is going to have probably implications also across the country. You know, when you think about the early 70s and and how you have several generations of, of folks growing up kind of taking for granted, um, you know, the, the, the access to these services and their rights. And we're now playing with a world that many people have actually never lived in and never experienced, but it's just this kind of ideologically driven thing. And I really worry about that. I guess I want to take a, a little bit of a, a detour for a quick minute. You know, I mean, you are a 
like me, you're an academic, but you're also a lawyer and you, you do, you wear many hats, but you're also a human being who cares a lot about this stuff. I, I guess I want to ask you, cause you said this is the most peril we've been in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in as long as you can remember, H- how do you feel doing this work? I mean, is this, um, <laughs> do you ever take a, a minute to just to process that? Yeah, it's, um, it is tough. It's, it's, sometimes it's, um, depressing (laughs) or demoralizing. I mean, I, you know, when I first started doing this in the late nineties, early two thousands, we used to win like all the time, you know, and we used to win these cases and, um, we don't win anymore. You know, the, the federal courts are incredibly hostile. The, um, state legislatures, like especially in Ohio, are incredibly gerrymandered, do not reflect public opinion. So in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's not even like we can say, well, you know, the people just aren't with us. We're losing this fight because that's, you know, America wants these kind of laws. It's just not true, you know, and it's, so it's it just constantly feels like the deck is stacked um, right now, and it, it, it both in the courts and in the legislatures. Um, I mean, I, I guess, I guess the upside, I would say, not to not to be totally depressing about it, but it is, it still feels like a sort of a gift to be able to do something, to be able to try to to fight back. And so, I think you know, as as long as I can do that, I certainly you know intend to keep fighting. And I think you know sometimes. Um, Again, you know, we, we, the Texas situation has been all the talk and also the Supreme Court looking at possibly overturning Roe v. Wade. You know, this may just be what it takes. You know, it may be finally time that the tide is going to turn and, and maybe maybe there's good news around the corner. I don't know. I'm, I'm always an optimist. So <laughs> I don't know. It's, um, you know, maybe I maybe I'm also being Pollyannish. We'll see. Well, a, a little bit of Pollyannish, Pollyannishness, is that the word? Uh, is, is, is not. Pollyannism. Yeah, right. So you, you mentioned gerrymandering, and I want to talk about that for a minute because, the, you know, we tend to get excited about issues and, and, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't know, cancer or you think about, you know, climate change or abortion. But the process of democracy is the underpinning of all of this in a way. And, you know, we famously don't do civics very well in this country and haven't in a while. Right. Right. Uh, But it's super important. So what's your take on this? I mean, to what extent is gerrymandering skewing, um, you know, and driving uh, what our what our supermajority legislature here in Ohio can do? Um, Do we have good data on what people think and and what the alignment is between the legislative representation and popular opinion on things like abortion? We do. And I I am unfortunately not going to be able to quote you exact statistics, um, (laughs) but we do know that First of all, across America, the majority of people support access to abortion and support Roe v. Wade. Actually, that support is increasing recently and and is um, at an all-time high in the U.S. Ohio is somewhat less pro-choice than the country as a whole, but um, still a majority a majority of Ohioans support 
Roe v. Wade and support abortion access. And um, the legislature is is absolutely out of touch with that. As you mentioned, there's a supermajority that is extremely hostile to abortion rights that passes laws that are way out of the mainstream of public opinion. So I don't know that, you know, you can't always obviously draw a really direct line from gerrymandering to particular types of legislation, right? But um, it does, you know, there is evidence to indicate that these sort of district line drawing leads to entrenched incumbents who are at the more extreme ends of their party, you know, politics, and that um, result, the result is going to be legislation that is out of touch with with the populace. Yeah, and of course, when you talk about something like popular opinion, as you suggested before, I mean, it's not even clear that people understand what is legal and what is not and Mm -hmm. kind of understand the issues themselves. So you ask them, well, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? I'm not sure how many Ohioans could tell you what Roe versus Wade did or does, not to mention, you know, KCV Planned Parenthood and and other subsequent um, cases. So, you know, there, there's just a general sort of like legal uh, reproductive rights literacy issue that underpins this as well. Absolutely. And there's an, right. And this is an incredibly complex, nuanced area. It does not really lend itself to um, sound bites or, or it does, but those sound bites don't really capture, you know, capture the reality a lot of times. I also think that there is a, there's a real issue because sometimes people will say, I'm pro-life. And what they mean by that is that they are personally opposed to abortion, but they don't mean that they're opposed to legalizing it. You know, that that they don't necessarily think that their beliefs should um, be imposed on other people. And I think that that is the type of question that gets asked in these public opinion polls. And it actually is not um, precise enough, or it doesn't really reflect or give us enough information about what people really think about these issues. And it, right, as it turns out, you know, they're all over the spectrum. They have a wide variety of views about what is and isn't okay. And then those views may or may not translate into what they think should be policy and who should be making those decisions, people, their families, doctors, et cetera, versus like the legislature. Yeah, to the extent that they know, again, I mean, even recently we had several members of Congress tell their stories of having abortions and Mm -hmm. this kind of courageous publicness of talking honestly about you don't necessarily know who around you has needed an abortion, sought out an abortion for various reasons. There's obviously discussions about rape and incest and Mm -hmm. kind of the exceptions uh, around these that becomes part of the conversation. Right. So once once you have those conversations, I think people can get a little bit more nuanced about things. You know, and then there's the problem of sort of translating scientific terminology and concepts right into legislation, which is... Another big problem, just again, to use the heartbeat example, you know, these bills, because of how they define what they, these laws, how they define what is illegal, cuts off the right to an abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy, which is really means you're only four weeks post having conceived, right? Like that because of how pregnancy is measured from a person's last menstrual period. And then on, so first of all, people often don't realize quite how early that that cutoff is, but then also how inaccurate the term heartbeat is. I mean, an embryo at six weeks, which has been in existence and developing for four weeks, 
does not have a heart. You know, it has this this electrical impulse, you know, that creates a cardiac tone in what will eventually develop into a heart, but it's not a heartbeat, you know, but um, this shorthand and this legislative language gets translated into these sound bites. And then it's, it's very confusing for people who might just say, Oh, heartbeat ban. Sure. I mean, that, that must be right. That, that, that must ban abortion at some late point in pregnancy. And I I guess I'm in favor of that. It's something we've talked about on the show uh, to, to link a couple of pieces together. I mean, Ohio's, I believe still the only state that doesn't have statewide health uh, education standards. Correct. And we're not just talking about, you know, teenagers or kids here. We're talking about grown adults who have shown us again and again that they don't understand how pregnancy works. Right. <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, that's a whole different level of problem in a way. Yeah, some of them are in the legislature too, right? That's that is definitely a problem. Yeah. <laughs> So let's turn to the uh, kind of elephant in the room that you already mentioned, which is you know the Texas bill SB eight, mm-hmm. um, and there you mentioned that there's a, a Supreme Court challenge now based on the Mississippi uh, law. And, and by the way, we're gonna we're gonna uh, link to all of these things in in the show notes so we can provide some detail and updated data and things like that. Um, but I, I wondered if you can talk a little bit about how this might translate to Ohio. My recollection, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, was you know some of these heartbeat bills that came around, even like Ohio Right to Life kind of kept at arm's length from a few of them because they knew they weren't going to pass muster. Mm-hmm. But now we have Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. We have a whole new cast of folks on the Supreme Court. And now they're they're kind of like chomping at the bit a little bit to get on board with this. So right. you know, is the Texas law, you know, the kind of piece that they are waiting for to give cover for, you know, just getting ready uh, and joining in this? Or is Ohio a different state than Texas in some ways? Um, I guess I'm just wondering kind of what precedent Texas sets for Ohio. Is it a one-to-one thing or is Ohio expected to react in some different ways depending on how the Texas stuff goes? So there, yeah, that's a really, there's a lot in that question. There's a, so there are a lot of strands here. I mean, one is the sort of uniqueness of the Texas law that is really the only law of its kind in that it has this sort of private vigilante structure, right? That we've probably, you know, folks have heard a lot about where it's only private individuals bringing lawsuits that enforce it. And that is the only state that has a law like this. And that's what's made it so hard to even get sort of traction with the the legal challenges to the law, which as of right now is very clearly unconstitutional. Um, And so that is kind of like a next generation law, like the prior heartbeat laws that are already on the books in a number of states but are all blocked by courts. Um, those were challengeable because they did have public enforcement mechanisms that could be blocked by the courts. And like Ohio's right now is sitting in court in front of the trial court. The trial court blocked it before it went into effect, but now has put the case on hold, waiting for other legal developments to play out. And so um, in some other states, their cases are over. They already had them blocked. Another one, there, there's you know, they're on appeal. So they're all at different stages right now in the litigation process. And whatever happens, either with the Texas case, if that gets back up to the Supreme Court, or this other Mississippi case that the court is definitely going to hear this term, one or both of those cases could then affect 
what's going on with all those open pending cases right now. So including Ohio's. So if the Supreme Court says, you know, Roe v. Wade is overturned, states can decide whether to outlaw abortion or not, um, then that is going to be a different legal standard that gets applied. And when the court is deciding what to do about Ohio's heartbeat law, for example. I don't know how law professors like you do it because, you know, I taught con law from a poli-sci perspective, right? And, you know, you have your big cases that you want to talk about, which are you clearly have to, uh, you know, make sure the students know. But so much when they ask you, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> you just, well, it depends. And there's this thing here and it's kind of this and depends on the, I mean, there's so much that it's it's exhausting to keep track of. And so I, I would I would guess that also it's, it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of passion about things like abortion rights mm-hmm. and also about, you know, anti-abortion. Um, but getting people to really understand from a kind of um, advocacy or activist perspective is a little hard because it's there's a lot of like nuance and detail and you sometimes don't even know w- what exactly you're facing. That's right. And I mean, especially with right now, it's like, right, as, as a professor, I'll have students who come and want to talk to me. They want to write research papers or, you know, they, they want to write something about um, – uh, abortion rights right now. And they say, can you help suggest a paper topic? And normally in a normal year, I'd be like, yeah, here are, you know, 15 topics of what's going on in this area of the law. But right now I have to say, you know, anything you write could be obsolete <laughs> in the next few yeah. months. And if you're thinking about getting this published, it may not be the best topic because, you know, there's only a few things to, to say now because there's so much is up in the air. It is unlike, again, unlike any time uh, since I've been doing this work is just the Supreme Court. We don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do with this Mississippi case, although we have some idea that it's not going to be good. Uh, the Texas thing, you know, everybody keeps asking, like, what's going to happen next with Texas? It's like, this is just uncharted territory. We have no idea. You know, no, no one does. So yeah, it's, it's really scary. And, and, and then there's the prospect that, you know, if things continue, if Texas continues to get away with this strategy, you know, other states are going to turn around and adopt those kind of laws as well, including, I would not be surprised if Ohio um, decides to adopt a law like Texas's. We, we could talk about all the, the legal back and forth, and there, there are certainly lots of details here that we don't, have time to get into. And also it's maybe not even the best use of our time because we don't want to lose sight of the big picture here. And I guess I want to ask you, you know, as as a legal scholar, but also as somebody who cares again, deeply about this, I mean, and this is really depressing. I think there's no way this question doesn't lead to a depressing answer, but what are we actually talking about if Roe goes down? What is, what does Ohio actually look like? And I'm wondering if you can give some examples of the specifics. I mean, we hear in states where, you know, where abortion gets restricted, highly restricted, that some people will go to other states and presumably, you know, states like New York and things like that. But the access, that's a huge barrier to access and that's going to be devastating for, for poor folks and is going to skew along all sorts of socio-demographics, socioeconomic demographics. So, you know, can you give me a, have you thought a little bit about like what happens, uh, you know, the, the court decides on a Monday and we wake up on a Tuesday and what do we do? I mean, yes, this is exactly what keeps me up at night um, all the time. So I, I definitely have thought about it. I mean, one thing is we can see what's going on in Texas right now, which is um, not even maybe as bad as it's going to be 
if Roe is overturned. But in Texas right now, you know, you have, according to the providers who are on the ground there, just it's harrowing, you know, people who are really desperate and in really horrible circumstances who say, you know, I can't travel out of state, even if funding is available for me to travel out of state, I can't miss work. I'll, you know, I won't get paid. I'll lose my job. I have three kids already. Most people who have abortions already have kids or already parents. So, you know, who's going to watch my kids overnight when I travel 10 hours to Oklahoma? And, you know, that's what we're going to be facing in Ohio. And just remember, you know, Ohio is smaller than Texas, but the states surrounding Ohio, there's no guarantee of abortion access either. So there will be huge swaths of the country without access. And just, yeah, and just to think about what that means, like to give you an example, like you said, so folks will sometimes contact me, physicians and so on, if they have a legal question um, about an abortion law or about how, you know, particular situations. And I've talked to physicians in twice in the past month who had a pregnant 10-year-old, two different pregnant 10-year-olds in Ohio needing abortions, one pregnant because of rape, the other one pregnant because of incest. You know, Texas's law, if they were in Texas, Texas has no exception for those circumstances. Um, Those are, you know, real people whose lives um, will be very, you know, devastated by this um, by this occurring. And, and the, the idea behind overturning Roe v. Wade, people who are in favor of that will say, well, the idea is to return this decision to the democratic process, right? Let the people vote on what they think the best rules are. You know, surely a democratic process would protect vulnerable people, but it doesn't. And like we just talked about, the the legislatures are so gerrymandered that the rules that they come up with are so far from what the majority of people really think is right and fair and just. And of course, you know, they never, the legislative process does a very poor job of standing up for the most vulnerable people anyway, right? And for people who are lacking in economic means, people who are already marginalized, who already have trouble accessing healthcare, those are the ones who are going to be hit the hardest. So we have a lot of healthcare professionals that listen to this show, and I'm also a medical educator. I often try to think about how to talk about this issue with students. And I noticed, for example, that some of the the professional organizations, the American Osteopathic Association, and I believe the AMA, but this is pretty typical, they don't want to touch abortion oftentimes, right? So, you know, they try to stay out of that because it can't go well for them or something, or or they, they think that anyway. But I noticed that some of the statements that came out recently, I mean, what they try to do is to say, whatever you think of this issue, this is interference with physicians and patients. This is, you know, that's their way into the issue. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what your kind of pitch to people who work in healthcare generally is in terms of getting them to think about the stakes of these issues and why they should care um, and, and why they should also so actively support uh, you know, women and, and women's rights and, and reproductive rights generally? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I think that is exactly the problem is that within mainstream medicine, there is this sort of isolation in which, you know, ab- abortion is kind of thought of as its own area that many medical professionals don't feel that they're connected to or invested in, and they don't feel that these restrictions on abortion really affect them and their 
practice. And so there's this kind of reinforcement of, of stigma and of isolation around abortion through that attitude. And I think it is really important to recognize that what is going on is that legislators with no medical expertise and no medical background are telling doctors, you know, things like what surgical procedure they can use and can't use, you know, regardless of what the physician's best judgment is and what the physician thinks is safest for the patient. And they're telling them, you know, what dosages they can use of, of the abortion drugs. And I, my husband is a physician, he's ear, nose and throat. So in a different field, but I often talk to him and his friends and say, can you imagine if legislators were trying to tell you how to prescribe, you know, what dosage to prescribe of a drug um, to a particular patient or, you know, how to perform a surgical procedure, micromanaging at that level, you would never stand for that kind of intrusion in your practice. And I think it's really incumbent on medical professionals to, to stand up in that way and, and say that this kind of interference is not appropriate. So I, I do agree with that framing of, of the problem as being just sort of interference in the doctor-patient relationship and, and, and in doctor's expertise and clinician's expertise. So my last question is, you know, I've, I've noticed you quoted in a few places where you, you kind of go out of your way to remind people that reproductive rights aren't just limited to abortion, right? That you know, I mean, it, obviously, it's a, it's a hugely important part of what we talk about and what needs to be defended. But also, you've done work ar- around, uh, you know, the rights of female prisoners to prenatal care and access to feminine hygiene products and, and, and other things as well. And I guess I, I just want to get you to reflect a little bit in closing and kind of how we can think generally about this idea of women's health and where abortion fits into this and to stay focused on that because so much of this becomes about everything but women's health. I guess I I also would just say, you know, there's this framing, right, that we we talk about abortion as a choice and we don't talk and, and often as a moral choice rather than a healthcare decision, right? Yet we tend not as much to talk about pregnancy and parenting as also, you know, healthcare, continuing a pregnancy is also a healthcare decision. It's also a choice. Um, it also has moral dimensions and all just, you know, all healthcare decisions arguably uh, have moral dimensions to them as well. I mean, there's it's it's not such a, a, a clear demarcation that sort of abortion is this moral question and, and nothing else is right. That nothing else is like it. There's, that abortion is, as we say in the law, sort of sui generis, right? It's 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 just its own thing. And again, this this idea of separating abortion from healthcare really does lead to that kind of thinking, and it suggests that the government has a special kind of interest in the abortion decision that it doesn't have in other areas, whereas the reality is all these healthcare decisions are are deeply personal, they are deeply important, they are the kinds of things that people generally don't think the government should be dictating to other people. Well, we're about to head into what is probably going to be a pretty difficult patch, you know, um, and we have a lot of big decisions and 
I think we we fear where they're going, but we still don't know on some level. Mm-hmm. I, I just really value being able to have a level-headed conversation about it. I wish we could do that more. That's been something I've been trying to do in my teaching for years, which is like we can take hard questions and have serious conversations about them. And, and I appreciate that about your work and also what you've been talking with us today about. So, um, Professor Jesse Hill, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for engaging in this conversation. It's been wonderful. My many thanks to Professor Jesse Hill for joining me on the show. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by friend of the show, Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's evolving social media presence, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, next time with a discussion with the good folks at the Pew Research Center about what Ohio should do with the money that's going to be coming into our state from the opioid settlements. Okay, thanks for listening and be well.